Welcome to session three, third and final session of the Renunciation in Lay Life class. It's nice to see everyone again. Um, we'll begin with a chance to talk a little bit about um, the material that you might have worked with over the last week, having to do with mental habits and patterns and finding ways to um, renounce or at least step back from um, that conditioned kind of uh, behavior that we get stuck in. And I'm curious if anyone has any comments or questions about what you might have learned. There were some um, reflection questions in the study guide as well as um, the suggestion to try out any of the practices in uh, section two that feel juicy or useful to you. Any um, comments on your explorations over the last week or any questions on the reading before we move on to the, to the new material? Yeah, Cynthia. You're still muted, Cynthia. And you can't read my mind, right? Um, one of the patterns that, that came up for me was just the, the difficulty that I consistently have to, let's, let me stop, let me start over. I have to bring a certain a heavy handed approach to my patterns and that is slapping myself in the head to get away from the fact that I am a self. That's a mental pattern that I have that I, it's really hard for me to let go of. I, I work on it, I think I've got it. And then I find that I've done it X, Y, Z and five other times. And I know that's hard for many of us, but that's my pattern. I see, well, uh... I would say almost everybody here is familiar with the pattern of self, unless one has not seen it yet, <laughs> because it's definitely there. Um, um, I did notice that the first thing you said was that I have to take a heavy-handed approach, and I thought, did you really have to? And where does that have to come from? Um, so you're noticing the pattern of self. How do you how, how do you feel it or see it most often? I, I see it most often in the place in my mind where character, personality, and self join. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, I, I, I have a difficulty thinking of myself um, as a character-less person <laughs> or a self-less person. It, it's it's hard for me to separate out those, all those extrinsic factors that it's so hard to talk about self without tons of I, me, mys and all that. So given okay. that that's the case, it's just difficult for me to separate 
and feel comfortable. I always feel a little, you know. Yeah, well, that sounds like the practice is working um, because <laughs> the self is the project we've been invested in for all of our life. And so there's a disorientation if it's not our main project or if we realize that it may not be as substantial as we thought. There are a lot of different um, intertwining parts that make up the self. Um, and the, the real task is not to get rid of all of those, um, but to see through them. And even after there's kind of an initial seeing through um, where you're absolutely certain that this is only conditioned and made up, um, it's not like it stops arising at that point. <laughs> so um, there will still be that. And, you know, the Buddha called himself I and me, and he said my, so he just didn't have any uh, confusion about using those words. So um, it can be interesting to, once you realize how firmly it pervades our language, it can be interesting to try to speak without so much self-reference, um, so much self-focus, but um, don't get too entangled because it's very difficult, of course, to not use those words. Um, sometimes people try. You can say things like this um, conditioned bundle of mentality and materiality, um, you know, within this, there has arisen the intention to set, and it's all, it's fine, that's correct, um, and it's kind of cumbersome. <laughs> but um, I hear you on the self-project, that's what we'll talk about a little bit today. Um, but I, I would worry a little bit about being too heavy-handed, <laughs> because it's, yeah, just, just notice it. Does that help? A little bit, okay. Um, Sandy, you have your hand up. Um, yeah, I had a question about uh, something you said. Uh, oh, you've muted accidentally. Okay, I should be okay there. There, that's, that's good. Yeah, sorry. Um, in the reading for today, where you say seeing the world as an objective external entity by definition creates a self. I didn't quite quite see that. Well, if the world is something that is distinct and uh, objectively itself, in a sense, um, then we would only know that in contrast to something that wasn't that, which would be ourself. Okay, that seems to be kind of an issue of non-separation. That's sort of how I think about that. Um, is that. Is that what you're sort of getting at there? Um, I'm pointing out that if we think something has its own um, self-contained identity, um, that would always exist in relation to something outside of that. You know, if it's self-contained and we know that, we're seeing that, um, 
then it would have to be separate and distinct from whatever it is that's knowing that. So that creates the self as the knower of the world. It doesn't necessarily mean the self like, oh, it's Kim with my personal history. There, there are many different shades of self. Like I just said to Cynthia, there's so many different strands of it. One of them is this idea that the self can, can know external things that are separate from it. Scientific view says that. Um, so that's an identification at the very least with consciousness and possibly with um, the, the fourth aggregate also. Yeah, it doesn't mean that there isn't something out there. Um, Buddhism doesn't have, at least early Buddhism, doesn't have anything to say about the philosophical side of this. Is this just total solipsism? Is there actually something there? Could we know it? You know, these kinds of questions are not, weren't really of concern to the Buddha because the early Buddha, because they don't have to do with whether or not you can be free. <laughs> so um, it's really whether or not you're clinging to all of that stuff. Later traditions make a sort of a more of an attempt at that, um, but I don't know that we need to get into that in great detail. But there is, I think, something out there. Um, but we would only know it through our sense organs and sense consciousness. Other comments or questions at this point? Okay, well, good. Then um, I'd like to uh, speak now a little bit about this um, topic that was uh, in the section three of the study guide. And I, I know it's getting a little deep in there by the time we get to section three, um, but I really wanted to uh, point toward uh, where letting go, you know, can eventually lead, according to the Buddha. And we, you know, we talked about mental patterns in general last time, and I think really the bulk of our work in the Dharma is in this area, this is section two area where we're realizing the ways in which we have habitual responses to things and reactive emotions that are based on wanting and identification essentially and and you know just trying to see those see them clearly um, feel them feel the impact of that way of relating in the body and gradually kind of thin them out <laughs> so they're not as um, compulsive let's say, compulsive to our way of being. And then by definition, we become freer when we're not as subject to these compulsions that we have in the mind. Um, so this week, I wanted to focus a little bit more specifically on letting go of um, self or existence or, and then people worry, well, what's gonna be left and you know, how will I navigate? Will I remember to eat? And am I gonna be able to make a living? And you know, these questions that come up, um, which are normal. And then you know, what, is it, you know, what does this really mean? Because this is a very deeply ingrained mental pattern and it's not like evil or bad, um, it's uh, normal. We even educate our children to have this sense and to um, see the world in certain ways in order to navigate 
But we, we realize uh, if we take on a spiritual practice in particular the Buddhist path that there's a fair amount of suffering associated with uh, believing in a solid self that's walking through an external world. And we can sense that as we start to tune into it. So then we wanna know what we can, you know, how we can start to work with that suffering. So section three begins with this notion of vibhava tanha, which is, you know, that's a fancy Pali word that just usually translated as craving for non-existence. You know, you'll hear the three of these are the three, well, there's maybe four, but the three main kinds of tanha are craving for sense pleasures, create kama tanha, craving for existence, bhava tanha, and craving for non-existence, vibhava tanha. Sometimes they, um, yeah, those are the, those are the three. So, um, I think it's a good enough translation, craving for non-existence, um, but there's a pretty wide range in how it manifests, and it's subtle. It also can be quite subtle, and so I worry that the particular translation of craving for non-existence, like that's not a usual phrase that we would use in our everyday conversation with people, so I worry that using a technical sounding phrase like that obscures it so that people don't recognize this movement of mind. So that's why I put a whole bunch of bullet points around what it could possibly look like. Um, so we don't need to actively wish for things to go away or actively wish not to have a self or not to have certain roles. Um, it's really much simpler than that because Things will always go away when the conditions for them aren't there, and they will never go away when the conditions for them are still there. So we don't need this, this actively wanting things not to be there or to change is really extra. That's why that sutta that you read says that there, um, I think it's actually in the embedded in the study guide, it says there are beings that overreach by want actively wanting things to go away or wanting things not to happen. Whereas it's holding back when you um, want to hold on to things and keep them and you like them. And that's sort of another common movement of our mind. That's more in the realm of Kamatanha and Bhavatanha. So the middle way between these two extremes of spending all of our time trying to get things that we want and not have things that we don't want is to simply acknowledge that what has come to be has come to be. It sounds so simple, right? This person acknowledges that what has come to be has come to be, and then relating to that in a way that doesn't involve clinging so that it will pass when it's meant to. Um, so that in particular, that might sound kind of bland, like what does that really mean? Well, for example, it means if the self the self has come to be, you have a notion that you're, you are a particular personality, then you acknowledge that that's what you're feeling at that moment. Um, the self has arisen. That's fine. It's a movement of mind. Not easy to see that, but that's the best relationship to have to it, as opposed to, oh, I like it, you know, sort of buying into it, which we do a lot, or hating it and saying, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I wish that didn't happen. Oh, no, there's that self again. Well, um, that's overreaching according to that sutta. So it's the middle way is quite simple, but not easy. So 
Section three then goes on to point out that practicing renunciation has less to do with focusing on the object that we're trying to renounce, quote unquote, and instead um, focusing on the bond to the object and how the mind is you know, clinging to this object or not. You know, it's really the bond that matters. And there was those kind of vivid examples of, what, of a person who has things that aren't even very appealing, but is still unable to let them go. And somebody else who has things that are very appealing and yet can let them go. So it's not so much the object, but really the degree of clinging to it. So there are sort of two modes of clinging. Um, there's appropriation, which is mind making as it's called and identification, which is I making or me making. So the strength of these, the strength of our appropriation or our identification is proportional to the effectiveness of the bond that determines the effectiveness of the bond. So you don't need to worry about then, well, how am I going to get rid of all that? You know, as usual, we have the first question, how can I just cut that? Well, wait, it's the uh, investigation of the movements of having or getting appropriation or the movements of becoming or being identification. So in doing that, um, as we do that investigation, which is um, usually done in the body uh, as well as the mind, but we can feel literally that when we're clinging, there's tension in the body. Um, we can feel how much we want something. Another thing we can feel is that our, our attention narrows. Like um, um, today I was looking up some information online and I was really uh, kind of keenly wanting this, the information that I was looking for. And uh, I found an article about it and my mind kind of zeroed in on it. And I only realized about five minutes later when I was getting near the end of the article, um, not that concentration is a bad thing, but that there was tension in the way I was, you know, looking at that screen to read the article because I really wanted that information. It was sort of an appropriation there of I've got to get this and get it into my head. It's important that I know this. So I could feel it right there. Um, I was really uh, clinging in a sense to that. I could have read it in a more relaxed way and still taken in the information, but that wasn't how my mind did it. So, um, you know, these simple investigations in the body, in the mind, watching uh, that is the way to learn about our bonds enough that we'll be able to someday let them go. And so in doing this, in doing this kind of investigation, it's natural that the mind gets sharper. You know, it starts to see things it didn't see before because we're investigating and actually the very way that we know things will start to evolve. So awareness, um, the knowing or the mindfulness that we're bringing to things, I'm mixing up those terms with, cause I don't want to try to differentiate them all too carefully. Um, let's just say awareness is that awareness itself can deepen and clarify through these kinds of investigations, particularly the ones that the Buddha pointed us toward the investigation of appropriation and identification so we start to gain access, you know, when we have this kind of direct knowing, watching of really seeing the mind doing its antics, doing its creation of the self, doing its grabbing. And we're watching those very 
clear movement of the mind, we can actually um, uh, cultivate what is talked about in that MN66 reference about the simile of the quail, where there's those four different kinds of relationship. And the, the first one is where you just sort of don't even know that the bond is there, you buy into it, the Buddha's like, this person is completely fettered. You know, and then there's the one where we, we don't buy into it. This is what Cynthia was talking about. It's like, you don't want the bond that you have and you try to get rid of it. Buddha says that doesn't work either. So, you know, grabbing and pushing away are equally um, bond inducing, if you will. And then there's mindfulness, which is very good. Buddha says, great, you're still fettered when you're doing mindfulness because this thing is arising, but um, you're on the path. And so he sort of approves of, that form, whether it's, it doesn't matter if it's slow to arise or if it's quick to arise, uh, somehow we become mindful of the pattern that we're doing and that's good. Uh, it, it weakens it, mindfulness weakens it. But very interestingly, this sutta is one of the places where he points out that there is yet another way of relating to things, which is with this direct knowing, this um, jnana, it's the word, it's the, um, Pali word for direct knowledge. And in that case, when, as soon as the mind has that kind of knowing, things that arise within that space are, are let go of, are actually um, banish in a way that under, undercuts the root of them. It won't happen just once, you'll have to do it more than once. But I'm, I wanted, I'm drawing this out a little bit to encourage you to notice in your own practice, if you have sometimes a kind of a just basic level mindfulness kind of knowing where it's like you could put a note on it, you know what it is, it's happening, but you're aware of it. Or, so that's one level. Or if you've ever experienced, this is usually in meditation, a kind of knowing that is very clear, very sharp, so directed that when things arise in it, they vanish instantly. And you, know, you have what's called direct knowing things, insight knowledge. And it does come about. You don't have to, have, you know, have like a stage of awakening or anything. Um, but it's much easier when you do um, to have that level. And that is what the Buddha is pointing us toward. You know, to abide in that kind of knowing. Things that arise, you are just undercutting, clinging. Uh, so it's a very quick uh, unfolding of the path. We can't always maintain that kind of mind, but. I think it's important to know about that. that. Mindfulness alone is not the end of the story, or at least mindfulness itself can evolve to have this deeper dimension to it. So that's good. I and mean, if you want to get all the way to the roots of clinging, you really want to let go completely, we will need that kind of knowledge, kind of knowing. Um, so then the last kind of key teaching in there is this idea of a structural nature of the fetters in our mind is that our mind is like a crumpled up cloth or piece of paper and it's got internal bonds that are holding it together that's why it stays crumpled whereas and so there's a difference between cleaning the medium so that your cloth is very clean or your paper is very pristine um, and actually unfolding it <laughs> getting rid of those cutting those internal um, bonds such that it opens. So that's a slightly different thing. So the, the cleaning is the realm of good karma, which we should do as much as possible because a clean cloth turns out to be easier to unfold. <laughs> this is now where we break the analogy with the physical world. So dirty cloth, clean cloth, it doesn't matter so much in the physical world, but in the mind, a clean mind is so much easier to break the bonds. 
So we do our good karma, but the karma that ends karma, the karma of really seeing through is what breaks the bonds and allows the mind to spring open and become more and more open, more and more free, more and more undistorting of experience. So you can imagine that a mind with a lot of twists and turns in its structure, stuff comes into it, it gets a little bent as it comes in. And these are the distortions that we usually see with through our delusion and our clinging. So if that's a helpful image, um, please consider it. If it isn't, you can just let it go. It's just, um, just an idea. Joseph, as Joseph Goldstein says, it does not matter to what you do not cling. <laughs> that is worth pondering. It does not matter to what you do not cling. So it's the non-clinging, liberation through non-clinging. Again and again, you'll see in the suttas, and I think that's even in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, I think he translates it this way. Often at the end of suttas, it will say, you know, after the Buddha had spoken, those monks delighted in the words of the Buddha. And at that time, 60 monks' minds were liberated from the taints through non-clinging. So, you know, it's a, just a, it's a boilerplate phrase that you see again and again. Do we just sort of read it and dismiss it? Okay, whatever. Or like, wait a minute, what is liberation through non-clinging? What does that mean exactly? So liberation comes about when we don't cling. It doesn't say it comes about when we do something. <laughs> it says it comes about when we don't cling. So that's the task, actually. And all the practices that we do are helping the mind to not cling so often. Um, that's worth considering. All right. And then at the very end, um, it goes into the fact that uh, the free mind can't really be characterized very well. And we don't hear about Nibbana too much in our uh, tradition. There, it's, it's sort of mostly spoken about in negative terms. It means that we're not clinging. We don't have any greed, hatred, or delusion. It's the undistorted, unborn, undying. There's always this un or not in front of it. Um, because the Buddha, the early Buddha at least, um, didn't like to put so much um, direct wording on it. Why? So the mind wouldn't cling to that idea of what it is. Got to get that. Uh, it's too easy, too easy to do that. He knew the way our minds work. Um, so that means, of course, that free people are not so characterizable. You don't know what to look for in them. Not greed, not hatred, not delusion. That we would definitely uh, need. But beyond that, um, you know, this is why awakened people look different. And, you know, I don't know how many arahants we've all run across. I, I personally can't know if someone is an arahant or not. So it may be that um, you know, some of the advanced teachers that I know of are not quite there and uh, still have a little bit of greed, hatred, and delusion. So there's still something to characterize them by. But when the mind is truly free, it's very difficult to characterize it. The Buddha never characterized himself. He would say... I am thus, something like that. I am the one who is thus, the Tathagata. That literally means thus gone or thus come, but it could just mean thus. And so, and he also called himself Tadi, which really does mean thus. So he, he would characterize himself only by saying that he is as he is in the moment. I am the one who is thus, like this right now. It's great. 
And if other people tried to characterize him, he wouldn't usually buy into it. Um, he would just see that as a function of their own mind, what they were seeing in him. Okay. So with that kind of overview of the material, I thought we would do a very brief meditation and then I want you guys to have time for breakout groups. Um, so let's sit and finding a posture that's upright and relaxed. Gently closing your eyes. connecting in with the sensations of the body sitting, perhaps the spot where you're sitting, letting go into that so you feel balanced and comfortable. And softening a bit, softening in the eyes, the face. Releasing the muscles in the neck. Can help to imagine a little space between the top vertebra and the base of the skull. It often relaxes the neck. And letting the shoulders drop. Softening into the chest area, down into the belly. Releasing any bracing in the legs. This will be a bit of a reflective meditation. I'd like to invite um, in your experience to do a very simple, particular form of the noting practice. Many of you are familiar with the practice of just putting a gentle note onto experience no more often than every two or three seconds. But you know, things like hearing, cold, or sadness, or thinking. There's a way in which we can subtly imagine that it's us that's doing each of those things. We say hearing, but we think I am hearing. And so it might be interesting to use the passive voice to note. So sound being heard, sensations being known. 
could use an active voice that doesn't include the I, thought appearing. Give it a try for a few minutes if it's of interest. As you do this, you may notice that there's no particular need to consider your experience as a self or as yours. Seems to just be happening. We're just seeing if you can rest without adding any notion of a self. Okay, so if that was intriguing, you can of course try that off the cushion also, you know, as you're doing your noting practice throughout the day or noticing what's going on, you might cast it into the passive voice from time to time and see what effect that has. One is reminded of the quote from, by, by Wittgenstein who says, the self is nothing more than a shadow cast by grammar. Okay. So um, 
let's let's have some breakout groups chance for you guys to talk briefly um, with each other and the question which you can think about while i'm setting them up is what have you learned about renunciation from this class and how is renunciation currently showing up in your practice so what have you learned and or i guess you could do either of those um, how is it showing up in your practice so let me set up the rooms. Okay, so welcome back. I would love to hear any comments from that because it's of interest to me how the class has gone for you and how you know, renunciation is manifesting. Or if you have any questions, um, we have time for that now. I just wanted to thank you for the class. I've really enjoyed it. And I was telling the people in our in my small breakout group that one of the things that really came home to me during this class is that before this class, I thought renunciation was all external. It was like getting rid of objects, living the monk lifestyle, just having one meal a day sort of things. And now I realize that it's much more internal. It's getting rid of your habits, getting rid of your sense of self, that the whole... It goes, it's kind of almost like the Satipatthana Sutta goes from the outside to deeper and deeper levels. And yeah. that's one of the things I got from this class I really appreciate. Oh, great. Yeah, the renunciation is definitely an internal mm -hmm. state of mind and we have to direct it toward these internal things also. Beautiful. Okay, um, Jean. I think one of the nice things about this class for me has been, well, when I started uh, meditating a few years ago, I started basically with Kim. And we, um, I, I was recalling in this class that for, I don't know how many years I sat with you and I'd, I'd kind of, I'd absorb a little something or something else, you know, but I was pretty vague about what was going on, but I kept at it. And in this class for the first time, I truly feel maybe I'm at home. I, I, I feel the benefit of the work I've done. Um, Beautiful. Not only, you know, for towards the subject of renunciation, which, which I think is most valuable to, to really um, be able to identify certain patterns and watch the craving towards those things. And if I get, if I enter, if I identify them and I can watch, I can let go. And it's quite interesting, but I wanted to thank you because I can say, I think, Quite literally, I've come a long way. Thanks. That's beautiful to hear and, and touching. And I remember all those years of <laughs> sitting in that weekly group. So <laughs> delightful to hear. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, Thank I'm you. happy. Sandy. Um, uh, I also want to thank you for the class. I think I've learned a lot. I mentioned in the breakout group that Coming into this, I sort of associated renunciation with a, a kind of narrowing uh, or restriction. That's sort of the feeling I got in my mind, um, even though I thought I had a little bit of an idea of what it was about. But 
Um, but now after the class, you asked what's different in your view after the class. Um, to me, it's, it's become much more of an opening sort of thing. I think of renunciation now in terms of opportunities um, nice. to let go. So I sort of figuratively speaking, kind of survey things in my life and, and, and see a few of them as opportunities for renunciation. And look at something that I cling to and say, hmm, do I need to cling to that? Would it be more fun if I didn't cling to that? Um, that sort of thing. So that, that to me is a, just a, a radically different way to think of renunciation. It's just these, these kind of opportunities that, that lie around you. Beautifully said. Yeah, clinging is, clinging is, this, is the restriction. <laughs> and so not clinging is an, is an opening and a freeing and a relaxing. Yeah, nicely said. Other comments, Sarah? Um, yeah, I began to see that um, there's a sense of freedom that comes with renunciation and also that it's really just about letting go. And I, I learned Achan Cha's quote very, very early in my practice. And I remember it from time to time, but it was, um, useful to be reminded of it here. Um, I also think that the, one of the things that I cling to the most or that cling to me maybe are my um, views and opinions. Um, and so it's always worthwhile to see that it would be good to work with some of them and also the sense of I'm right. Um, and so letting go of being right has also been liberating. I don't yeah. always, but when I, when I realize, oh, I'm attached to being right again, and then go, oh, it doesn't matter, um, that's liberating. Beautifully said. That's a big area of clinging, is views. Yeah. Thank you. A lot of, a life, lifetime of work on, on views and opinions, I think, but it's um, very fruitful. Yeah. Uh, Max. Uh, Kim, it's been a great course. Uh, the study guide, you know, being able to read about it beforehand was, was wonderful and, and some really good discussions. Um, I think Joseph Goldstein, I, I, I wrote it down because it really resounded with me. Um, it does not matter to what you do not cling. And yeah. letting go is one of those simple, but not so simple things, I should say. Um, but the clutter in your mind in the things that you have around you add to the turmoil, I think. So it's, it's been nice to let go of not only physical things, but you know, it's the speech, you know, and the self-talk and, you know, I have to dive deeper into the, the self-identity and the ego and all that. That's, that's the next thing that I really want to kind of concentrate on, but it's been a, been a fantastic course. So thank you so much for, for doing this. It's, it's been oh, wonderful. Good. I'm always glad to hear which aspects um, stood out for people. And I noticed that different people have said different things, which also makes me happy. So there's a lot of different dimensions to this. 
Any questions? Still lingering? I did get one in the chat. Let's see. Oh, Aditi. Yeah, again, thank you so much, Kim, for this course. And, you know, uh, for a while I thought, oh, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm on the way. And then, you know, there was one of these whirly winds that blew really strong. And um, I, I mean, I don't feel that confident anymore. I'm like, am I even like good enough? Can I even do this practice anymore? Like I'm so shaken right now. So how do you practice in such times? Well, um, the arising of a sense of shakiness or uncertainty about practice is, of course, one more thing that we can notice. <laughs> we have a sense of, um, at this moment, I'm feeling not confident about practice. So that's um, a movement of mind. That's a thought, essentially. I know that's not so easy to see. Um, so there's, there's um, essentially you're asking about doubt, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, reflecting on the teachings, talking with teachers, talking with friends, um, recognizing it as a thought, all of these are you know, ways that we can not be so caught in that particular movement of mind. Because it isn't true, of course. You're not any different than you were right before you had that thought, right? So the problem is believing it. Yeah. And I can say absolutely that your practice is just fine, even though you won't believe that necessarily. But um, it was fine earlier, and it's fine when the doubt comes. It's just one more thing that comes. Is that a new hand, Sarah, or is it uh, the same no, hand? It's an old hand. It's an old hand. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I did get a question in the chat about um, watching thoughts vanish in the pool of awareness, like creating an imagination of an image of a thought vanishing in awareness. Um, I think that's better than buying into a thought, but it's also worth noticing that the image of the pool and the idea that the thought sinks like a stone is a thought. Just a thought. It can be skillful um, if that's uh, the alternative is to grab onto the thought, but um, uh, it's, it's um, use it as, as it seems useful. But other, other useful reflections that are quicker than forming an image include the reflection of impermanence. Um, you know, the thought arose, it will pass. Uh, and the reflection of not self. You know, the thought has appeared only by conditions, uh, reflection on dependent arising. These are faster and uh, don't create anything new. Yeah. Okay, well then we're really right up to the end. And so I just want to um, thank all of you actually for your um, 
coming here and the work that you've done and the reflections. And I loved all the questions. And I'm always just excited that people are interested in this topic of renunciation. And I don't hold back. I don't try to, like I said in the first class, I don't pretty it up by calling it letting go or something like that. I just say renunciation and look at all these people that show up. So I think that's really good because the Buddha talked a lot about it as something important. Um, so I wish you very well in continuing with that. Feel free to um, keep using the study guide for yourself. I am still kind of modifying it. So I would, uh, as I said before, I'd prefer that it not be sent uh, to other folks, but I'm sure there will be another version of it as I keep working on it. And um, there's a possible half day that I sent an email about um, if you're interested. So unless there are any final comments, we are at, at time. I see some of the chats saying thank you. That's very nice. Um, and we could unmute and say thank you and goodbye to each other. Thanks to all your lovely classmates, right? Who helped make this a rich experience. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.